Welcome to Consensual, where we talk about SVOC New Hampshire, our student-led group um, comprised of 11 student advocates who fight to end sexual violence on cultural, legislative, interpersonal, and personal levels. I hope you enjoy this episode of Consensual. Hello. <laughs> Welcome to Consensual, the SVOC podcast. Um, today we have with us Ayla and Reagan from the team, um, but we have Katrina Nugent as a guest from the Monadnock Center of Violence Prevention. Um, and we're gonna talk a bit um, today about um, systems of care after an assault and what the Monadnock Center of Violence Prevention offers in that realm and how they operate. Um, do you wanna give a little introduction, Katrina, or say a little hello? Sure. Yeah. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Katrina. I'm the Prevention Education Program Director for MCVP Crisis and Prevention Center uh, located in Keene. Um, we are the uh, local crisis center for all of Cheshire County and then 14 towns in Western Hillsborough County. All right. Um, okay, so I guess we could just jump right into it. Um, Katrina, would you want to give us like an overview of like what is post-assault centers, uh, circles of care, excuse me, and like um, the specific in the realm of post-assault care and caring for um, a survivor after trauma, what, what is that? Yeah, so um, if, I mean, there's, there's a couple of different options that, that a survivor could take. Um, if they decide to seek emergency medical attention, um, whether that be um, at Monadnock Community Hospital or, you know, um, Cheshire Medical Center, we would be automatically called. Um, and so we show up in the, in the emergency room and try to walk them through um, any type of medical procedure they might be having then. Um, so along with medical um, treatment for pregnancy prevention, if they, um, you know, have female anatomy, um, or if, um, you know, or for STI prevention, um, Aside from that, um, there's also the process of, of having a forensic exam done, um, which would be called a SANE exam, um, standing for sexual assault nurse examiner exam. So a, a specially trained and certified nurse would um, perform the procedure. Um, it doesn't have to be a doctor. It could be a doctor, but it doesn't have to be. Um, nurses can be certified to, to perform this as well. Um, and so for that process, um, it is a pretty invasive exam. Um, so we would be there, um, to support them through that and kind of explain, you know, what it's going to be and try to be their voice if they felt they could not have a voice, um, you know, and let them know what their rights are through that process. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that's so, kind of the first part of it. Yeah. So that's just like the immediate aftermath, things you do in a hospital setting, um, We've I know we've tried the group. This might be a little bit of a side note, but we've tried to come in contact with um, or ask the hospital about like what sane nurses' roles are at the hospital and if they exist. And we really have never gotten an answer. So I guess oh, like yeah. on yeah on live, do you know like do you guys have connections with sane nurses at Monadnock? Um, is that yeah. Like yeah, yeah um, I mean, to the best of my knowledge, there's only one for Monadnock Community Hospital, um, and she lives 45 minutes away from Peterborough. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, and that is that is part of, you know, the problem, too, is that um, 
if if a, someone who's experienced an assault goes and they want a forensic exam, um, there might not be a sane nurse available for them. Yeah. Um, I mean, they can certainly request one, but they would have to wait. And, you know, um, if somebody is called in, they don't have to come in, um, especially, you know, who knows what was what was going on for them. So, yeah. Right. I have a question about um, when you do you personally go to hospitals to assist with the same? Okay. So when you do go, um, do you feel like most or oftentimes you have a connection with the survivor? Do they seem um, like very connected to you or do you kind of struggle to be able to um, communicate and connect with them while you're there? Um, I mean, it kind of depends. Um, some, some might not even want us to be there to begin with, right? So they always have that option too. Um, we'll sort of be there and, you know, the medical team, medical staff that's there will ask them, you know, this is a, an advocate from MCBP. Do you want them to come in? Um, and they, they may or may not say yes. You know, if they do, usually after we come in and we kind of explain our role, um, you know, and we let them know that whatever they say to us stays with us and, um, you know, we're completely confidential, um, that tends to ease some tension a little bit and some awkwardness, um, you know, but, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's certainly a, a period of, you know, they're just sort of it's awkward, you know, <laughs> you know, you have someone that you've never met before, uh, who just shows up and, and, you know, they know way more about what's happened than you do. Um, and like, you know, you feel the need to tell people your story over and over again. Um, you know, and so our role as the advocate is to be there and say, you know, you don't have to tell me anything, right. Um, we don't want you to have to relive anything. This is, you know, what I'm here for. Um, you can talk to me if you want. Um, you don't have to talk to me. Um, I can stay in the room with you for this entire procedure or, you know, only a part of it. You know, you tell me what, what would be most helpful for you. Um, yeah. you know, yeah. if they want us to stay, then we stay and we kind of explain, you know, different parts of the exam for them. But yeah, I guess, I guess that makes me, that makes me think a little bit more about like when a sane nurse can't be present or what happens when like, we don't have somebody in the room from the MCVP, like, are there like really great needs that are being missed for these um, survivors that like that we would fail to acknowledge within a traditional like quote unquote processing system? Like what well, I mm. guess an, a question that I could ask is like, um, do you find any like really prevalent um, themes and like behavior or pathology for survivors that you you kind of have to work to like comfort them and or um, I guess, Yeah, um, so it, it kind of depends um, on the survivor and really, you know, what level of resilience they already have prior to the assault. Um, some people can get really trapped um, within that traumatic moment. Um, and so when we arrive at, you know, at the hospital, they're, they're still in that survival mode state, you know, um, and psychological trauma is not something that a lot of medical staff are trained to understand. Um, and so unfortunately things can happen within that realm that um, are not necessarily good for that trauma, you know, and good for um, helping the survivor come out of that traumatic, you know, survival mode mindset. Right. I, I'm back. Am I back? Okay. Yes. <laughs> Great. Um, 
and I guess just like a follow-up because I was able to hear your response. Um, have you been able to see like a difference um, in how survivors treat themselves and their situation um, with after communication with the MCVP or with talking to someone like you? Yeah, I mean, we do. We do. I think just for anyone, it's good to know that they're not alone. You know, I think any anyone who's, you know, experiencing anything troubling, whether it's an assault or, you know, just some difficult emotions that they're going through, um, it's good to know that other people understand what's, you know, what's going on and, and they, you know, don't judge them for any of the emotions that they might be feeling. Um, you know, and we're not, we're not there to tell them what to do. We're just to say, these are all the different things that you can do, you know, um, I think, I think that's incredibly powerful for some of our survivors. I mean, some, some people want us, do want us to do things for them. And that's just not how we operate. Um, Cause we don't think that that's helpful for us to be making decisions for people. Um, that's not part of our mission. So, um, you know, so some people may not necessarily um, have that great of an experience because they are expecting us to do some of the work for them. Um, and we do to an extent, but not without their permission. Like they certainly have to be the one driving anything that we do, you know? Um, so in, in like connecting them to different resources and things like that, you know, it would certainly be um, up to them to uh, be the ones telling us to do that. So, um, and, and, you know, a lot of the phone calls and stuff that they would need to make for other resources, you know, we can be there with them, but they still have to be the ones to make those phone calls. Um, but I do think, I do think it's, it's helpful, you know, just, just to know that you're not alone and that the person that's with you isn't going to judge you. And, um, you know, I mean, we're constantly there telling you it's, it was, this was not your fault. You did not deserve this, nor could you ever have done anything to deserve this. Um, you know, and really kind of understand, we understand trauma. I mean, we're trained in trauma. Um, and so I think we have, you know, some techniques that help people kind of come out of that a little bit, not in a therapeutic sense, because um, that's not what we do. We don't provide therapy, but, um, you know, just in a, in a sense of grounding that person so they can feel a little bit more in control of themselves. Right. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I have uh, the next question, which is with your work, you know, kind of when you're in the hospital with people or even in any other scenarios um, where you're really dealing or working one-on-one -on -one with a survivor. Um, is that work like emotionally like stressful and difficult um, for you or would you say it's more fulfilling? I'm sure it's a little bit of both but um, would you describe maybe how how that works emotionally for you having you know always dealing with survivors yeah, yeah. Um, so I mean, there is there is a certain sense of like vicarious trauma that can happen for us. Um, certainly, if, if there are things that we have experienced before in our personal lives, and then now we're being faced with it again, um, you know, through somebody else's eyes, that that can be something that is hard. Um, I mean, there's absolutely, I mean, it, being in any position, any profession or, or occupation where you see the horrible things that people do to each other, um, it, it's hard and it takes a toll on you. Um, but I think for us, where we're able to um, be a support system for somebody, you know, there's, there's, we're not, we don't deal with the people who cause harm, right? Um, we're just there to educate and, you know, provide support. So um, I think that that part of it is really fulfilling and knowing that, um, you know, at least we can tell this person that they have somebody on their side, you know, 
Um, and I think that is fulfilling. That's, but yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. you certainly see some things that um, make you lose a little sleep for sure. Definitely. Um, I also wanted to ask like, what is, what is the training look like? Like, what does it take to be trained? What are some of the most like prevailing themes in training as to like, what is the best thing to do in a situation, situation like this and something you should really. Yeah. Um, so for us, um, so each there's 13 crisis centers in New Hampshire. Um, each one does their own training. Um, we are required by law to, pr to provide up to 35 hours of training for our advocates with an additional six hours every year. Um, so really what we focus on is making sure people just understand the types of violence that we deal with from a very foundational standpoint, like knows how to recognize um, unhealthy red flags and then abusive behaviors, understands power dynamics. Um, and we really try to get people to um, empathize and be able to walk in the shoes of a survivor, um, you know, whether it's through dating or domestic violence or sexual violence um, or stalking, you know, child abuse, any of those things that we deal with, um, really getting them to understand what it is like for that person and all the different range of emotions that person might be feeling at any given time. Um, and then we also really try to uh, hone in on the trauma that it caused that these events can cause for people. Um, you know, trauma represents itself in many different ways or pre presents itself in many different ways for people. Um, no two people are going to experience something the same way. And, you know, it, it shows up in all sorts of different behaviors that can be really confusing. Um, so we really try to, um, and that's a lot of our, our continual ongoing training too, so that we spend at least, you know, part of that six hours every year on trauma. Um, and understanding, you know, how it affects the body, how it affects the brain, um, how it affects behavioral health, um, and those kinds of things. So, um, and then we do, we do, you know, some systems uh, training too, just understanding the legal system, understanding the the SANE program, um, you know, understanding some of the other resources that are available for survivors, um, you know, both both legal and civil proceedings. So, but yeah, but it's primarily on like sort of that trauma mindset and you know how to how to help people through that right um, you're saying that uh each year you need another or you everyone goes through another six hours mm -hmm. um how has this year you know with covid really looked for not only your training and you're working with um your co-workers at mcdp um but also with survivors um what does that look like for you guys? Yeah, um, so I mean, as far as our training um, in, in our professional development, it's been great um, because we have access to way more training than we would ever have access to. I mean, with everything being virtual, everything is less expensive um, and we're a nonprofit. So <laughs> we don't always have a lot of money for training. Um, so a lot of times we're, we're, we're hoping that there are free things that come through or like grants that we can take advantage of for our training and stuff. Um, so for this year, you know, it's been great. I mean, the entire National Sexual Assault Conference was free and online. Um, so normally I would travel to San uh, Sacramento. Anyway, I would travel to California, Anaheim, there it is, um, for that conference or travel to Philadelphia for that conference. And this year I was able to just do it, you know, sitting right here um, and for free. So. Um, that's been great. Um, however, the flip side of that is that um, we, you know, we've done a couple of virtual training sessions for our own advocates. 
um, and it's not as engaging um, as it would be in person. Um, so we've had to, you know, I mean, there are things that we can do a lot more easily. Um, we have, you know, access for other professionals from the community to come in. Uh, that's been a little bit easier than having them come in in person. Uh, but then, you know, it's it's just not as engaging. So there's been a lot of extra follow-up um, for people who are trained to be advocates now. Um, and then the other side of that is that access to us, you know, survivors access to us is, is definitely been diminished um, through COVID. Definitely, definitely. I mean, you have, um, you know, people who may be trapped in their house um, with the person that's causing harm to them, um, you know, and, and unable to get out, unable to even make a phone call. Um, so that's that's been hard. You know, we we frequently see people who use, um, you know, times when they're supposed to be at school or times when um, they're supposed to be at work or on a lunch break. You know, to come in into our office and see us. And now that's not happening. So um, that's certainly been a, a bit of a, you know, a sad point for us because we know that there's a lot more people out there who. Um, could use services from us that just can't access us right now. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Like one of those things you wonder is like a sign of the times or if it's just like something we can move past or like think about new solutions. It's just a whole set of problems. Um, but I guess I wanted to go further and ask kind of like a question from the point of view of our group. Um, because like, as we are like a completely student run group, we um, operate in a rural area. Um, a lot of like the frustrations that we face um, in like our reach is that we are completely student run um, and we don't have the type of trauma training you've, you've talked about or we can't serve as psychiatrists, therapists, any, any of those positions. Um, so like, I feel like there's always some frustration and like the reach we can or the, the help we can provide to our peers who are going through these situations. Um, so if you could like offer any advice to like us or listeners about like what you can do as like a young person without any training as like a student, like what is the effective way you can be supportive of people going through hard situations? Um, I guess that's the question. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so for us, um, anyone 15 and older can access our services um, confidentially. Um, the only caveat to that is that we are still, anyone in New Hampshire 18 and older is a mandated reporter. Um, so if somebody is telling me that um, they're being heard at home, then that's something that I need to report. Um, if somebody is telling me, um, you know, specific things about a sexual assault, then, then that would be things that I need to report. Um, so, I mean, there, there's that. So in, in terms of, of having peer support for people under 18, that's huge. It's absolutely crucial, um, you know, because you, you have that ability to be completely confidential. Um, there are national organizations out there that um, help to provide training to people under 18 to be peer support people, um, love is respect. Um, can do that. Um, if you go to their website, um, there's, there's a link usually right at the top about how to become uh, a youth advocate. Um, and so they provide training for that. Um, but really, it, it's just about, you know, le listening, a lot of listening, um, a, and listening without judgment. 
Um, and I think too, just um, educating yourself to know, um, you know, about the different dynamics of an assault, you know, um, the fact that it's probably somebody that they know, um, somebody that they know really well and respected and trusted. Um, keeping in mind too, that, you know, it's, it's probably somebody that, you know, has a prominent place within their realm. So it's, you know, either somebody that is an adult and respected, or um, it's somebody that is part of their friend group that would be, you know, cause a lot of social turmoil for them to, if that got out that, you know, that this happened. So, um, you know, I think understanding barriers to reporting um, is really important. And then also just educating yourself to know what resources are available. Um, I think it's really helpful too. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, I mean, for us, unfortunately, like, um, to go through our training, you would have to be 18. Um, I would love it if in the future we could create some type of, um, you know, peer advocate department of our, you know, of our organization. That would be awesome. Um, cause I think it's really, really needed. It's, it's absolutely crucial, absolutely crucial for survivors under 18. Yeah, I think that was just like a, like a really excellent way to think about it, like not only in terms of like understanding the issue and like the different facets that, that like prevent people from talking, from wanting to talk um, or reporting even as like a, as a last resort, um, yeah. but in, additionally, like just learning how to like empathize with somebody, listen, um, and like I think sometimes a lot when we're approaching problems, we like to think about it on the big scale, like, um, which is important. It's important to understand big issues, but at the same time, like coming at it, like this is an individual, this happened to you, you're my friend, this is a you specific situation and I wanna help you um, and just putting it in their hands. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are like some free short courses um, that are available for the National Sexual Violence Resource Center um, that anybody can take. Um, and there's one about active listening. Um, that's, I think is really, really helpful. Um, cause I think a lot of people have a misconception about how to be supportive as well. You know, we think that telling somebody that, oh, everything's going to be okay. And, you know, trying to fix it for them. I mean, that's where a lot of people's brains go automatically. Um, whereas what would really be helpful is just to listen, um, you know, and, and let them know that it's not their fault. It wasn't their fault. It could never be their fault, you know? Right. I feel like that was explicit, especially on the listening side of it. Um, I just thought of another question that I'd like to ask, kind of about switching over to what, how would you, along with um, active listening, uh, how would you, advise uh, either parents or um, teachers or anyone kind of in that guardian sort of realm to act and treat uh, teenagers, you know, even if they don't know that something's happened. You say like, if a parent doesn't know that their kid has been assaulted, you know, how, how would you just advise parents to go about their parenting and, and guardianship um, so as not to trigger anything for yeah. uh, their 
I think as a parent, you, you have a responsibility to open up dialogue about healthy sexuality from the, as early an age as possible. Um, it, I, that's really hard for parents to do. I mean, especially parents who um, did not learn healthy sexuality themselves. Um, but especially as you, know, you have kids that are approaching middle school um, and especially, I mean, and definitely high school, um, these should be conversations that are had frequently, um, you know, just letting them know that, that you're there for them. Um, and I mean, and, and not just by saying, you can tell me anything, right? Because every parent's going to say that to their kid, you can tell me anything. Um, but just acting like you, they can really tell you anything um, is really, really important. Um, and allowing children, um, you know, to, to set their own boundaries, you know, so if you have, you know, an 11 year old, 12 year old who wants you to knock before you come in their bedroom, knock before you go in their bedroom. You know, um, I think not only is that showing that um, you're going to respect a boundary, but it's, it shows them that their boundaries should be respected and deserve to be respected. Um, and that's huge, you know, um, not only for helping with confidence and making, making children less vulnerable to abusive behaviors, but um, also in stopping abusive behaviors from coming out in people too. So um, that's a big part of it is the boundary, modeling healthy boundaries from a, you know, a really early age, um, but also you know, allowing some space for, you know, for your kids to set those boundaries and, and to really actually respect them. Um, you know, there's a lot of technology out there right now to you know, check up on your kids. Um, and I, I really think most of it is very problematic because um, essentially you're telling them that it's okay to stalk somebody. Um, so I really, I, I really don't like when I hear that people are using that um, when really they could just have set up, you know, some, you know, some, some trust and some boundaries and, you know, and this is how humans learn. Humans learn by experiencing things and figuring stuff out on their own. And, um, you know, if we're constantly checking up on our kids not that we shouldn't like, Hey, where are you? Where are you going to be tonight? What time am I expecting you home? You know, who are, who's going to be there? You know, those, yes, those questions we have to ask, right? Um, and I say that because I have, I have kids too. Um, they're very young, but <laughs> eventually we'll be having these conversations. Um, so I think, you know, it's, but it's important to allow them to, um, to feel that they can be trusted, you know, too. Um, and I think the more that we try to push people away, if, if, you know, the more that we try to check up on our kids, it pushes them away you know, um, when we do it in a way that invades their privacy. So um, I think allowing as, as kids get older, allowing them to have space to figure stuff out on their own and allowing them to set up their own boundaries. Um, and when they want to talk, being open to that and just being open to listening without correcting. Um, you know, we, we sometimes as parents get like big egos and, <laughs> you know, we, we think we always have to be right. Um, and we always have to have the right answers. And when, when our, our kids challenge that, it's really hard for us sometimes. Um, but I think we need to, you know, understand that we are also human. You know? And we were teenagers once, we were preteens once, and we had to figure it out on our own. So I think parents do themselves a disservice by not realizing that um, they're human and they're allowed to not always have the right answer, you know, but they should always listen. That's awesome to hear. Um, I think that was a great explanation. I'm not <laughs>
relate to parts of it as well so yeah I also think just like what you said about like teaching your child that you know you trust them and you trust them to make their decisions when something like something as you know traumatizing as an assault or as harassment happens um like a person obviously will feel like that that power to make their own decisions has been taken away from them so having someone that they that they you know um in return trust um and you know respect to to assert their boundaries and kind of help them or not help them but like guide them and you know Mm -hmm. listen through that experience is important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's one thing that we tell, you know, people who are trying to be advocates is that our job is to put power back in their hands if they've experienced something traumatic. And so, um, you know, for parents, we need to start that empowerment process before anything happens, you know, Um, and that will eventually, you know, if, if something tragically does happen, then it can be, it, it, allows them to be more resilient too so I agree. awesome I think that we have asked you most of our questions Katrina mm. um, and we definitely thank you for you know helping helping educate us and you know our following um and just thanking you for being here today no thank you thank you this is this is awesome um I think that you, you all are doing um, a really crucial service, uh, you know, like I said, people that are under 18 really don't have a lot of outlets, um, especially if something like an assault happens. And so um, I think what you're doing is is really very important. So thank you. No, yeah, here she is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I also just wanted to say thank you so much for coming along with us um, and chatting because like I feel like every time even though we have these discussions on a daily basis among our group and among the other people we collaborate with, it's like a, you feel like you learn something new, something you hear it in a different way that you can apply to your life and just overall make sure that you're trying to live a lifestyle that's like the most respectful of yourself and other people um, in, in a consensual <laughs> consensual way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you, you find... Um you know, value in, in our conversation. So it's always, it's always nice to chat with you as well. I mean, and I gain perspective from you. So it's great. Thank you for listening to this episode of Consensual. If you want to keep following our group and hearing more about what we do and who we talk to, please subscribe to our email chain at www.svocnh.org or follow any of our social media um, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and the like.